0: we're gonna we're gonna start anybody um anybody have prayer requests for tonight
1: i'm going like to
2: pray for my my brother-in-law his name is hiram Hyland? a hiram K- no, H H I R A M. Hiram. 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 Hiram.
0: What's going on, Connie?
2: Well, he's um he's had diabetes really bad all his life, but he just got out of the hospital um last week and um, he's got pneumonia. I mean, you know, we're all getting older, and it's just things are happening, and um, we just need prayers for him, just for um, maybe him to get his strength back. And he's uh, severely anemic, so.
0: Wow. I'm waiting. i am <laughs> laughing at Um Chuck, you're here but I'm admitting you again. Um I'm laughing. I I think a number of us ought to yeah. get together and make donations and found a hospital for the lame and the blind and the <laughs> deaf and and um
3: Well this one's frozen. Well there were eight over there. Um
0: Okay. Heather. Heather. Um Melody, I just um I just admitted you. Are you are you here? I wish I could get rid of Oh, there you are.
3: Melody.
0: Oh, and Heather, holy cow. Um do all of you recognize these two really lovely women in the yes. lower left of my quarter? Just um We do okay we're just asking we're just asking for prayers um so um any so um connie's asked for her brother hiram um, but sorry brother-in-law mm-hmm. anybody Kay, Hi, how's your daughter thing? doing your audio not on
3: She's doing much better. Oh, good. Thank you for your prayers. Good, good.
4: All right.
3: She had a uh, bone marrow transplant Mm -hmm. on December 14th.
0: Oh, wow, finally.
3: First it was, uh, well, she was originally scheduled like September, but she still had a cancer in her bone marrow, so she wasn't ready. And December 14th, she finally, uh, her doctor finally did the bone marrow transplant. Wow. But first it was downhill, first 10 to 12 days until the grafting takes place. When the grafting took place, then it started to gradually improve. Up until then, she was holding on to her life by yeah. transfusions. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Because wow. her bone yeah. marrow
3: was either not making any or it made any, they were all no good. So, uh, couldn't uh, really uh, uh, help her. But after the grafting took place, I understand grafting takes place about 12 days after the transfusion, I mean transplant. Then uh, she started to slowly climb. So her blood count is starting to Look up. Oh, good. Oh, good. And uh, she hasn't had any blood transfusions in the last week, so her bone marrow is uh, starting to produce good blood.
0: Oh, that's good to hear. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Glad to hear that. Well, okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, let's let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of this day and for your presence with us. Um, King Lear and Pericles are special plays, t- certainly for me because they're um, both plays about something amazing going on in the lives of people and I say that with more emphasis tonight um, because I'm so aware in our world we don't make place for miracles for a divine goodness. We we are um, so bound by scientific ways of thinking that that it's affected um, the way we look at the world. And I would go so far as to say, in some ways, and I don't want to I don't want to take anything away from science and what it does do well. It does it well, but um, sometimes we expect too much of it, and um, at the expense of our ties to you. So I ask a special blessing on the work that we're doing here. Help us to enter into it and let it revive or strengthen our belief in you. That um, miracles are a part of our life if if we just weren't so blinded by our attachments to the world. So I ask for a blessing for all of us, all of us to um, uh, give sight to our eyes, our mind. Help us to see you at work. And to know you in our hearts. Um, let these plays do that work. They're not, we're not just reading literature here. Um, and I'm particularly grateful for the plays that we're doing right now. So let a blessing be on us in the work that we're doing. Help it to deepen our understanding, our faith, um, our heart. To give a greater fervor to the loves that we have. Um, a, better, a better lawfulness to our loves. I ask a um, blessing on Connie's um, brother-in-law, Hiram. Um, strengthen him in his recovery. Um, help him to get his strength. Um, the one thing that I'd like to specially offer tonight, and I say this in view of um, our prayers week by week, we we often bring our sorrows. We, we bring our thanksgiving too. Um, in the writing that I'm doing, I'm... I'm writing on movies and I'm making a critique in some of them. And and Suzanne and I went back to watch the movie Life of Pi. I don't know if any of you have seen it.
4: Yeah.
0: But in one of the scenes, young Pi, who is three quarters of the way through his survival at sea, and he's about to be shipwrecked, he doesn't know that. But he's writing in his notebook and he's giving thanks to the tiger. What's his name? Richard Parker. Richard Parker. He's been fighting this tiger for probably hundreds of days at this point. Um, um, has managed to survive and this tiger has threatened his life more than a few occasions. He's had to fight him off, he's had to work at training him. It, there's an allegorical element to this story. It's, in some sense he's learning to deal with the animal inside of him which has been one of the great themes of our work from the beginning. He's learning to deal with the animal in him, to bring it under control in a matter of survival. Because if you look at the world he's in, everybody's eating everybody else. The fish are eating fish, birds, animals, in fact the humans. The hyena, who's an image of the the French cook, wants to eat everybody. So in one sense it's about the way we feed on each other. One of At the center of our faith is a belief in the Eucharist that Christ fed us, and we're asked to feed each other, not to feed on each other, to use each other, but to offer ourselves. Hard thing to do; it goes so against our nature. But in one of the lines, Pied is writing in his notebooks and says, "Thank you, Easter? partner, no,
3: par- oh, Richard Parker.
0: Thank you, Richard par- Parker, for." not only being there as a companion, but forcing him t- to learn how to survive. And I, it was a beautiful line, and it just reminded me of something that you know, we've seen in our literature, and you've heard from me a good number of times, that so often the difficulties we're, we face, our own pains, the pains that we, um, we see in others and that we pray for, so often God allows that suffering to make us better. Our hold on the world is too great. We don't give it up enough. Um, but it's, it makes us better, or should, even if it means we have to die. In the middle of the Mass the words are um, let us be thankful always and everywhere. That's in the center of the Mass, let us be thankful always and everywhere. Can we be thankful in the midst of sufferings, our own and the sufferings of those who we love? It's a huge question. It was at the center of King Lear. It's the center of Pericles. Because Pericles is going to have a life of unbroken suffering. He's going to be a man in exile who won't stop suffering until the very, very end. So teach us, please help us to be be strengthened in our faith. You said to us that um, our faith faith could move mountains. I don't think you meant that literally but in a figurative sense you meant we could do amazing things. So increase our faith, faith strengthen our eyes, um, and help us to know that in all the sufferings in our, in our own lives or around us, you are at work trying to help us be who you've given us to be. So what? Be with um, Hiram in his difficulties. Um, Ralph and Pat. Um, um, be with um, Kay's daughter. What a great blessing uh, for David and Kay to watch this happen. Uh, to see a young woman make a turn like that. For Ralph.
1: Ralph and Pat. Ralph and Pat.
0: Oh yeah. There's a couple Um, um, a woman, an older woman went into the hospital, uh, be with um, Pat in her hospitalization and Ralph her husband and ask for a prayer for our neighbor across the street who's sick. Watch over him. Help him um, um, to know your presence. Um, We offer all of these prayers in your name Christ our Lord Amen
4: mm.
0: um for those of you who um, who might have gotten the the notes that I sent you earlier, I took the note off a while ago and replaced it because I'd made some changes in it um, at the, you know actually two minutes before going on class i m- I meant to say this before I went online because the whole anybody who listened to this will probably have a reason for not listening anymore, but. I'm so often struggling at the last minute to get all this done um, because I'm doing other things and I find myself here at the beginning of Pericles because I know the play pretty well but rereading it again for the work that we're going to do together suddenly a a number of things came flooding to me and too often that happens and I end up making changes in the notes. Anyway, if you copy the notes uh, before two minutes before class go back, because it's a different copy. I've just made some changes, so... Okay, we're doing T.S. Eliot. Remember, in Burt Norton, Eliot introduces the the, image, the notion of the uh, still point, um, and um, and um, makes these very philosophic statements. They're not like poetry, they're more like philosophic statements, conceptual statements than poetry at the very beginning where he says, time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, that is, if there's nothing but time, we're stuck in time, all time is unredeemable. If man's going to be redeemed because we're in a fallen condition here, it can only come from help outside of time. And we've talked about this um, it had to be a man and God, because our original sin was as human beings, a man, offending God. A God wouldn't do it, and a man wouldn't do it. It could only be by a God who'd taken on our nature, because it was our human nature at risk offending God. How do, how, how do, we, give, how do we give satisfaction, answer an injustice done against God when God's infinite? So it involved the greatest mystery in all of history, Christ coming into time. It's only by Christ coming into time that time's redeemed. You remember from the opening, he he says, my words echo thus in your mind to what purpose? Disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves, I do not know. Other echoes inhabit the garden, shall we follow? And immediately we're taken back to an image of the garden. It's what we've lost, it's what we all long for. And that image of Dust on a bowl of rose leaves is perfect because flowers are a reminder of the garden. It's the beauty of the garden we've lost. But it's one of those things typically that women put on tables with potpourri and, you know, and there's dust on it. In the garden, we see this couple looking into the drain pool. It's a concrete pool. It's a suburbia pool. It's not the garden. It's man's effort to get back. And it's empty. There's no light. A, A sun comes from out behind a cloud and the concrete shows and suddenly it's as if we leave this world of memory and are brought back by a shock into the present. To look down into the drain pool, dry the pool, dry concrete, brown edged, and the pool was filled with water out of sunlight and the lotus rose quietly quietly. The surface glittered out of heart of light and they were behind us reflected in the pool. I think that's an image of our parents at first. Then a cloud passed and the pool was empty. Go, said the bird, for the leaves were full of children, hidden excitedly containing laughter. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. It's easier for us to live in the past, even if it's full of regrets. We hold on to regrets, and it's like drinking alcohol, so we can stay there or we live in the future, hoping to escape our difficulties. But neither one, the past or future, um, locates us in the present because it's only in the present that we are with God. Because for God there is no past, there's no future, there's only a present. So that fleeting moment in the present is our one place of contact. It's that still point between this world and the next. That's the importance of that still point moment. Remember, we got that from Boethius when we did Boethius. Cannot bear very much reality. Time past and time future. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. In the second section, he says that the still point of the turning world, it's there everywhere. Neither flesh nor fleshness, neither from nor toward. At the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance. We cannot see it. We cannot see it, but we know it's there. I hope this is really clear by because we've gone over this a number of times. If you take two, a couple, a man and a woman, and a dance, when they make their dance, and they do a jump or a movement, Every movement they make implies a still point. If it didn't, they'd collapse, right? Any movement. They have to work against that or with that balance, whatever that still point is. So that still point, is Eliot, he, he uses a number of images, um, the violin, the vase, the dance, all of them, a staircase. Um, <clears throat> it's there, always. We can't see it, but we know it. Um, And remember, he ended um, in the fifth section, words move, music moves only in time, but that which is only living can only die. It's only by our contact with something outside the living that keeps us living. um, I'm, I'm trying to be very careful right now because I don't want to take too much time with getting us back to East Coker. Christ himself said he was the bread of life. He was the bread of life. It wasn't unless somebody ate him, ate this eternal bread, that they would have eternal life. Mortal life won't outlive itself. When we die, we're dead. It's only if we carry something beyond this living that we ourselves can share in that that living, that eternal life, right? but that which is only living can only die words after speech reach into silence only by the form the pattern can words or music reach the stillness is the Chinese jar and then he gives all these examples of that still point so even words even words all imply a center that was true for Shakespeare it's been true for every play we've read or the plays wouldn't end the way they do so here we st- we started East Coker. We did East Coker last week, right? Didn't we start East Coker last time? Yeah. Um, remember, in my beginning is my end, and he goes through all these things that are coming into being and fading away. So the focus of the beginning of East Coker is um, c- things coming into being and f- fading. S- succession, coming into time and leaving. Remember the opening, in my ge- beginning is my end, is the quote from... Queen Anne, um, when she went, when Elizabeth um, sent her to the scaffold to die, to be executed, Elizabeth stood there on the scaffold when she knew she was going to die. This was her end. And her last words were coded as, In my beginning is my end. In my end is my beginning. She was saying, I'm going to die now. Don't cry for me. Do not cry. This is the beginning of things for me. It ends that first sect, section feet rising, falling, eating, and drinking, dung, and death. He gives all these images of things in the world because that's where he starts with things in time. Dawn points, and another day prepares for heat and silence. Out at sea, the dawn wind wrinkles and slides. I'm here or there or elsewhere in my beginning. Where are we in these moments? What we know is the apophatic. It, it's a knowledge of things that we don't have a no- that we that we can't get fully a hold of. Okay. So the second section of East Coker. Remember, the focus here to pick up the theme and continue it and play a variation on it is things coming into being and passing away. Section two. What is the late November doing with the disturbance of the spring and creatures of the summer heat? and snowdrops writhing under feet and hollyhocks that ain't too high red into gray and tumble down late roses filled with early snow all of those are images of things passing away in the midst of something new coming into being thunder rolled by the rolling stars simulates triumphal cars deployed in constellated wars scorpion fights against the Sun until the sun and moon go down, comets weep, and Leonids fly, hunt the heavens and plains, world in a vortex, that shall bring the world to that destructive fire, which burns before the ice-cap rains, it keeps bringing together these contraries, something coming into being, something end of the tension that they produce. That was a way of putting it, not very satisfactory. A paraphrastic study in a worn-out, poetical fashion leaving one still with the intolerable wrestle with words and meanings. The poetry does not matter. It was not to start again what one has expected. If any of you write, you know that very often you sit down with this rush of inspiration, and two minutes later it's gone, and you're struggling to find the words to say what you want to say. A lot of you are smiling, so I know you know exactly what I mean. The poetry does not matter was not what one had expected, what was to be the value of the long look forward to, long hope for calm, the autumnal serenity and the wisdom of age. Had they deceived us or deceived themselves, the quiet-voiced elders, the us merely a receipt for deceit, the serenity only a deliberate beatude, the wisdom only the knowledge of dead secrets, useless in the darkness into which they peered, or from which they turn their eyes, because darkness awaits us all. We're all going to go into that darkness. There is, it seems to us, at best only a limited value in the knowledge derived from experience. The knowledge imposes a pattern, we think we know something, and falsifies, for the pattern is new in every moment, and every moment is a new and shocking valuation of all we've been. We are only undeceived of that which deceiving could no longer harm. In the middle, not only in the middle of the way, but all the way, in a dark wood. That's an allusion to Dante because remember the Divine Comedy started with Dante in the middle of the way, not in the past, not in the future, in that moment when a divine order was put into motion to help save him, to help him out of that spot in the middle, not only in the middle of the way, but all the way, in a dark wood, in a bramble on the edge of a grimpen, where is no secure foothold, and menaced by monsters, fancy lights risking enchantment. Do not let me hear of the wisdom of old men, but rather of their folly, their fear of fear and frenzy, their fear of possession, of belonging to another, or to others, or to God. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. The houses are all gone under the sea. The dancers are all gone under the hill. Section three will begin. Oh, dark, 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 they all go into the dark. That darkness is one we all face. <coughs> but there is that still point. Okay. Um, let's let's start. Um, very, very briefly. Um, sorry, I'm going to... Chuck, did you have something to say? No. Okay, the, I'm going to mute you all. Um, and remember, just anytime you want to jump in, jump in, okay? Don't hesitate. Remember at the, at the end of Lear, um, Lear has, um, has gone... What everybody thinks is mad... And um, he's reunited with Edgar, or I mean with Cordelia. There's that wonderful line when Edgar is watching his father Gloucester and Lear apparently go mad with the things that they're saying. That's in Act Four, Scene Six. And he says, "O matter and impertinency mixed, reason in madness." And I suggested back then that it's a profound line because what he's saying is, when you're used to living on the circumference right, where everything's in motion, and you're driven by motives of, what are the four motives, by the way, which St. Thomas and Boethius said motivates most of what we do? Quick, Quick quiz. Heather, go. What are the four? Connie, I know you know these. Come on. Power, wealth, wealth, uh,
2: passion, or pleasure. Pleasure and that's one more. Chuck.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck, I hope you're. I hope you're in good terms with Connie right now.
2: <laughs> <He> is. Because <laughs> he answered for me last
4: time.
0: <laughs> oh, come on. What's well, the, what's, <laughs> what's the fourth one?
4: Reputation.
0: Reputation. Yeah. That when you're driven by those things, they define the way you think, they define the way you see things. And if you don't see things that way, people in that world think there's something wrong with you, that you're mad. It was one of Plato's great themes 2,000 years ago. He said that there was a madness in love because it took us beyond the things of the world. And um, people thought that was true of Socrates. They thought it was true of Christ that Christ was ungodly, doing awful things. So what Edgar's seeing is that behind this madness, or beneath it, there's a kind of wisdom that they were speaking, even if the world couldn't completely understand it. And then remember when he gets to Dover, um, he says, this is Act 4, Scene 7, about line 30 or so, The two are finally reunited, Lear and Cordelia, after this change that both of them have undergone with all the suffering that they've endured. And Lear says, You do me wrong to take me out of the grave. Thou art a soul in bliss, but I am bound upon a wheel of fire that my own tears do scald like molten lead. It's that sense of repentance or contrition that we feel when we face our sins, and they burn. Um, and they wash away our sins. I mean, it, it's one of the images of purification that they burn us. Um, I am bound upon a wheel of fire that mine own tears do scald like molten lead. Is there anything more burning? There's. It's a spiritual cleansing to cry those tears. I mean, they're a gift. Um, and you remember <clears throat> one of the last questions that I asked when the whole, all of the, act, the different plots are coming to a point, a still point. Um, Edmund has just tried to save Lear and Cordelia and fails. And Lear comes out holding Cordelia's body. He puts a mirror up to her mouth to see to be sure she's dead. He's pretty sure she is. But at the very end, he goes, look there, look there. And he says, thou come no more. You'll never see her again. She'll not walk before him. She'll not leave or do what people do in their lives. Never, 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 never. Five nevers. Pray you undo this button. I mean, that can be a sign of madness. He's worried about a button at a time. It's so, it's so human. It's so vul- it, it, ex- it expresses such a vulnerability. What can he do? He's lost her. Pray you undo this button. Thank you, sir. <laughs> God, God, could he have expressed those sentiments at the beginning of the play? Not close. Not close. Um, Pray you undo this button. Thank you, sir. Do you see this? Look, look on her. Look, her lips. Look there. Look there. And the doctor and everybody else says, leave him because they're assuming he's mad. And you know that my reading of that line is that he's not mad, or if he's mad, he's mad in the world's terms. He's much closer to the center of that circle than he's ever been or anybody else is in that play. And another possible reading, this is my reading, I, I throw it out to you guys. You don't have to accept this, but it, it's pretty clear to me that at that point he sees Cordelia in the next life. She's passed. He's on that threshold, the still point, here in the world looking into the other one. So a secular won't see A secular, a scientific mind that believes that only matter is real, that there is no next life, would not see this. A modern rationalist would not. Um, a Christian would. It's one of the reasons I say that I think this is one of the most Catholic plays Shakespeare ever wrote, that it's rendering a, a miraculous moment. Not everybody there will see it. It's exactly that kind of situation that we read in the Bible over and over and over again when Christ is performing a miracle and the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes are going, he's blaspheming, he's doing a bad, he's doing this wrong, this wrong, this wrong. All they could see is something wrong a miracle was taking place in front of them, and they couldn't see it. So one of the things that Shakespeare's making us aware of in Lear is miracles take place a lot. Do we have eyes to see them? I've been arguing all along that poetry in the hands of the great poets is a means of taking us to that still point where we're in the world but we're also made aware of something more. Now I know that's that's just quick. I don't I don't want to take time beyond that. It's just a way of of going to um, Pericles. Um, but remember that wheel of fire because the wheel of fortune was that motive. Remember we've seen Shakespeare uses it probably half a dozen times. That wheel of fortune that he's explicit about. He got that from Boethius. His whole perception, his way of looking at the world, contains Boethius with him. Um, it's just a way of going back because so many of these things are going to be carried forward in what Shakespeare does with Pericles, even though they're radically transformed. So at this point, just looking back, any questions about Lear before we start Pericles any any questions about the end of that scene or what Shakespeare's doing or or at least what this mad teacher that you guys happen to be with <laughs> what what in this in the madness on this side of the screen, um, anything you guys want to challenge or have any questions about or Melody, it's good to see you. Good to see you. Me
5: too. Thanks you, for sticking with
0: me. No, thank you for sticking with us. You know what I just noticed? You I think you have the same bed we do. Oh yeah. I recognize, I mean, honestly, that's exactly, we bought it because we attracted it, but I don't like it because with the break between the bed and the, the back, you know, and the mattress, the pillow keeps sleeping down uh-huh. in it, sleeping down in it. <laughs> yes,
5: mine does too. You're right.
0: Um, I must be doing something wrong here. No questions. Heather, it's not like you. Is your friend going to come tonight?
2: Um, no, not tonight she'll be there. she'll probably be here next Tuesday.
0: Tell her to get the audio in this so she has some sense of what we're doing. okay okay We'll do okay let's let's start if you go to the my notes. Um, There's a number of amazing things that Shakespeare's doing in Pericles. It's not a popular play. It's not a popular play at all. And I'm gonna take the position here that it's not because it's misread a lot. And I hope to make that clear in in just a second. Pericles is one of a small handful of plays that Shakespeare wrote at the end of his life. that peop- The critics call romances. By romance they mean the the modern secular word would be improbable. They won't use the word miracle because to use that word implies something Christian, religious. The modern secular critic will talk about what's improbable, things that aren't likely to happen and that can't be explained. So they're they're not gonna call on a Christian perspective. They will secularize it. But it belongs to that world of improbable things. I want to enlarge on that a little bit because I don't think that's sufficient to explain what happens. Pericles, Twelfth Night, Winter's Tale, and The Tempest all are called romances. I would call Pericles and Winter's Tale paradisal, sacramental. That something is involving, something happens that involves the sacred. In a very explicit way, miracles take place and they all imply a divine love. The suffering is excruciating and sometimes really painful but it always ends in a joy a blessedness. Winter's Tale I think is going to do that exquisitely more finely than any play I know. In fact you already know I'm arguing that Lear is doing the same thing even though he's on a wheel of fire and crying molten tears the pain is almost unbearable I can't understand that play apart from the crucifixion. He, he is, like most tragic heroes, sort of glorified by the suffering that he's gone through and what it's helped him to see. So, Pericles belongs to that small handful. Um, um, one of its great themes is that what's lost is found. Because we're going to experience a man who loses everything his regime, his wife, his daughter, everything that means everything to him, he's lost it. And I can't give away the play, something will happen. I just, I don't like doing that. Something will happen to answer that, all the suffering. Um, but it shows that principle that we first first experienced, articulated in Boethius, that in a, in a universe in which God... In a universe which God created, there is no bad fortune. That was the line. That God is taking everything and changing it. So no matter what's lost, whatever suffering, our faith is that God is at work bringing some good. And whatever He's doing is accessible to our minds, not just faith, but to our reason. Because one of the one things, the great things you can say about Pericles is he's a man of reason. He, he, he uses his mind constantly to answer problems. He doesn't dodge them. He doesn't resign. He doesn't give in to them. Um, he's not like Lear. He's not calling down the heavens on his daughters or on evil people because he's surrounded by evil people. Um, he's not doing that. He's, he's using his mind in a, in a way that reflects a virtue in him. So he's constantly acting virtuously. Um, when the play begins it begins with Pericles coming to Antioch to um, undergo an ordeal remember the the ordeal in the medieval world was um, a battle between knights where they would put their lives at risk for something they honored he's putting his life at risk um, for the sake of a marriage that he's, he's going to go through the ordeal of, of trying to solve this riddle, knowing that if he doesn't, he will die. If he does, he'll win this woman. So it, at the outset, it's, it's showing a man willing to risk everything for what he loves. Okay. Now the great themes in mind... Well, wait, before we go... To, so it seems to me one, one of the things we should have in our mind at the opening of this play is Oedipus Rex. Because you remember Oedipus Rex solved the riddle of the Sphinx and thought he was very bright. Pericles doesn't have that kind of hubris. He's not that kind of man. But he solves the riddle, but the problem that he faces is very different. And he can't fall back on his pride saying, look how wise I am. Because things don't stop with his answer. He answers. He knows the answer to the riddle. But if you've read the opening of the play, you know the danger he faces. So... Shakespeare, in one sense, is, is calling to mind Oedipus Rex, a pagan, using his mind to solve a riddle, and so is Pericles, but his response to the problem is uh, radically different. Some of the major themes of the play, this one theme is central to almost every work Shakespeare did. Bonum est diffusivum sui, bonum est diffusivum sui. Goodness is diffusive. God is goodness. There is no evil outside of God. All evil is a privation. It's people turning away from him. But God is always at work doing something to pull them back. He did it with the Jews. He's doing it with the Christians. So that the, the play makes no sense. None. Any more than Lear. Because remember, I put this question to you. Why does every Shakespeare tragedy end with so many deaths... Um, if if there isn't some goodness at work in the world, all the all the nihilists, the modern critics, say that that proves everything's meaningless. If it's meaningless, how could the evil be answered in all those tragedies? How could the hero come to a recognition? Remember, every every tragedy turns on a point of recognition and a peripeteia, turn. So everyone applies a goodness at work in the world. Otherwise, the evil couldn't be answered. So in tragedy, it's not a bad thing. It's, it shows that there's some reason, some goodness, some justice at work in the world answering evil. The cost of it is death and suffering, but that's not a reason for despairing or losing hope. If anything, it's a reason for hoping in the midst of suffering. That was the great spirit of the ending of Lear. So goodness is diffusive. Okay. Why does Shakespeare use a narrator? This is, I think this is going to be major, and I, I hope it will blow you away in a minute. Why does Shakespeare use a narrator? He's a dramatist. He does this in no other play. Every once in a while, he, he may insert a narrator. I think there's a, a brief narrator voice, narrative voice in Wintersdale and some other plays. I mean, characters will narrate something when something's happened, very often a character will narrate it to another character, right? We do that all the time. This is what happened on lunch today. This, 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 this. But Shakespeare frames this whole play, a drama, in terms of a narration. And the narrator happens to be a man named Gower who lived two centuries before he did. And Gower is drawing on a play that existed before he did. So Gower is drawing on a play from the past, he writes a new version of it in his time that repopularized it, revitalized it, and now Shakespeare ha- is having this play about Pericles be told by Gower, a narrator. Why is he doing that? I'll come back to that. I'm just, right now, I want to just throw these things out. How does that, how does that structural feature that he's using a narrator relate to? Bonum est diffusivum sui. Bonum est diffusivum sui. Goodness is diffusive. How do the two relate? It's a relationship. What's going on? Um, the theme of beauty and justice, two major themes. The theme of justice has been major, remember, because um, in, a, in a world in which God has understood to rule, men are called to justice. We saw that over and over and over again in King Lear, people... Um, denied that we saw that with um, we, we looked at those lines Cornwall said I'm not going to call a court of law to convene in this I'm going I'm to punish Gloucester on my own because my law, my will is what's just Cordelia said the same thing so in King Lear we saw these characters who had the power to make whatever they wanted real In the beginning of this, Antiochus is going to um, um, condemn Pericles because he has the power to do it. He has the power to make whatever he wants real. That goes to the opening problem. I don't want to hit on it yet, but if you've read the opening, you know what's going on. He wants to make whatever he wants real, even if it includes an illicit, a horrible, Devilish sexual act. The settings: Antioch, Antiochus. If you've read Maccabees, I'm sorry, Micah's in here. If you've read Maccabees, you know that one of the villains of the of the, the Maccabee text are the kings of the Seleucid Empire, that the Greek Empire that was forming around the Jews. They kept trying to conquer the Jews. They captured the temple and turned the temple into a, a, um, a place of worship of their own gods, and they forced the Jews to do that. And the, the Jews who didn't um, conform were executed. It's one of the pur- purposes of those the Maccabee Testaments that the Jews, the good Jews, refused to give in. They, they would not turn away from Yahweh. And the temple was the place of worship. So when the Seleucid kings, Antiochus and others, um, took Jerusalem and tried to make them conform to the Greek ways, they didn't do it. The interesting thing about the setting here is that Shakespeare is taking at his setting most of those cities that St. Paul traveled in his travels. He visited those cities, Tyre, Antioch, Ephesus, things like that. That whole Mid-Eastern area, culture, um, um, made up most of the places that um, Paul Paul spent so much time. Um, And here, in, in Maccabees, it's interesting because the Jewish people are threatened by the Seleucid people, Antiochus and others. Here, that is the Greek influence, because the surrounding cultures, the culture surrounding Jerusalem, <coughs> were all Hellenistic Greek. The Gospel writers knew that when they were writing. They were writing to a Jewish audience was which had been under Greek control for a long, long time, which was then coming under Roman control. Um, but here, Shakespeare's showing that there's something important in Greek culture not to be lost. Now, one of the most important things at stake in this play is the beauty, mortal beauty. And I use that phrase deliberately. The power of women to overwhelm men by their beauty. Because you know that when um, um, Pericles looks at Antiochus' daughter, he's overwhelmed by her beauty, stunned by her beauty. Um, His response to her beauty puts him at risk. And we know how great that risk is because the wall in front of him is lined with the heads of men who came to woo that daughter and who lost their heads. So we're seeing how powerful the beauty of a woman is, how, how tremendously powerful a woman is by virtue. We know that in the modern world, but it wants to unplay it. I mean we've talked about this forever. Remember Odysseus, the greatest threats that he faced on his wandering were Calypso and Circe. Circe had him for a year and Calypso had him for eight years. So of the nine and a half years that he was on his adventures, nine of them were under the influence of women. So Shakespeare has been reminded, he's only reminded us of what so many of the ancient writers knew, that the beauty of a woman was not a small thing. It, it gave women a power over men that wasn't small. Um, <clears throat> the father-daughter relationship is crucial. Um, we're going to see that at the beginning. I'm going to give this away now, so I'm assuming you already know it. Antiochus gave birth to a daughter and has an incestuous relationship. That daughter is the one whom men are coming to woo. So in in spite of her incredible beauty, she's in an incestuous relationship with her father. Pericles is going to give birth to a girl. As a matter of fact, what's going on then is what we know in our contemporary world as sex trafficking. There's nothing in our world that Shakespeare didn't know. Sex trafficking. And one of the ironies is, Pericles could have washed up on her island and had sex with his daughter because he didn't know her. So Shakespeare is touching on the important relationship between a father and a daughter, how crucial that is to civilization. He does the same thing with mothers. The relationship between mothers and sons is so important. There's almost nothing in our world, nothing in our world that can help with those relationships because under a scientific world, those ties mean absolutely nothing. In Pericles, they do, because in Pericles we're going to go, we're going to visit a number of regimes, five or six regimes, and each one of them is going to throw a light on a sexual relationship. So we're learning something about the relationship between a man and a woman and the regime he's in, the influence it can have on him or her. So, um, so there's the setting, the action. Um, one of the last things I want to say about the setting is remember that almost every every um, every play we've read from Shakespeare has two settings, and in this one it it's no different. The settings here are these various mid regimes on the verge of Christianity, on the edge of Christianity, and the sea. And we've seen the sea is one of the most important images that writers have been dealing with since the beginning. It's there. It's the dominant theme in uh, the Odyssey. It's there in Moby Dick. It's there in Shakespeare's The Tempest. It's there in Dante. When Dante comes to the Paradiso, he says he's like a, a ship at sea. Because he's going to enter a world of grace. So what is the sea here in this play? What is Shakespeare doing with the sea? What is he wanting us to see about Pericles and... Um, all that happens in his life. Now let me stop. Those are just some of the major themes. I want to go to the play itself and read some lines but before we do, any any questions about um, some of those themes? I'm just trying to give you some of the background things so that when you start reading, you some some of these things will be on your mind.
1: <laughs> well, usually the C indicates there's going to be big change, something unknown, and that definitely does happen for Pericles. Yep. Or will.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Any questions or comments about just these opening perspectives that I've just thrown out here. Okay, I want to go to one of the major ones because it's one of the things that turn people off to Pericles and it's one of the, I think, one of the great mysteries about this play and um, I'm, I'm, I'm not aware of anybody that does much with it but I, I don't want to let it pass. So let's turn to the opening of the play. Remember, Gowan was a poet who lived two centuries before Shakespeare in the, 14th, in the 14th century. So many of the phrases that he uses would be in Middle English. They'd be a little bit antiquated, they'd be a little bit old. I, I'm not going to go back to them because we've got a pretty modernized version, I think most of us. But it's important to hear, remember when we did Chaucer and I read some of it, would it be... To sing a song that of old was a song from ashes, to ancient Gower is Coma, assuming man's infirmities to glad your air and please your eyes. Ay- it would be something a little bit, it would be something between that and, and Shakespeare's, but it's not heavily that. There will be a couple of instances where he'll actually use medieval words, but it's important to see. Remember when we did um, Eliot? And Eliot slipped into Middle English in the Four Quartets when I read that. Shakespeare's doing the same thing. Gower's a 14th century poet. So just keep in mind that the the audience would be hearing a voice lost, but present now, alive before them. Okay. <clears throat> so I just want to read a couple of these lines, and then I want, to, I want to ask what to me is, I think, one of the most important questions of the whole work. To sing a song that... So a narrator comes out in a drama. Shakespeare does not do this. Drama is a work of art that exists on its own. People just speak in their own voice. It's not, an, it's not a novel. We don't get it through a person. It's objectively there. In a novel, we get something through a person. There's an element of something subjective in all knowledge. As We get this... Jane Austen is giving us her story of say Elizabeth Bennett in Pride and Prejudice. Um, this is a drama but a chorus in the person of Gower comes out to introduce the play. To sing a song yeah, Sorry, God, it's getting worse. To sing a song that old was sung from ashes ancient Gowers come assuming man's infirmities to glad your ear and please your eyes. It hath been sung at festivals on ember elves and holy ales, and lords and ladies in their lives have read it for restoratives. The purchase is to make men glorious, ed bonum quad ant, um, antiquius melius. that is, ancient things are inherently better. If you born in these latter times when wits more ripe, Accept my rhymes, and that to hear an old man sing may to your wishes pleasure bring. I life would wish, and that I might waste it for you like taper light. He's going to burn himself out for it. Um, he's praising older things and saying um, it's, it's more appropriate now because when wits more ripe, Shakespeare's writing in an age given more value to education, so presumably the audience would be more widely educated than the audience in Chaucer's time or Homer's time. It'd be more like our audience. People would have more developed intellects, would you know, be more ready to understand things. Um, this Antioch then, Antiochus the Great, built up the city for his chiefest seat, the fairest in all Syria. Um, Antioch is um, in Lebanon. It's just north of Jerusalem. Okay. Um, Pericles is going to travel from Antioch to um, Tyre. Wait, is that right? To, uh, oh, where is he? Um, he's going to travel. Wait, he's from Tyre, which is in, sorry. He's in Tyre, which is in, in I think, in Lebanon. And he's going to travel to Antioch, which is in the south of Turkey. I remember. So it's along that eastern seaboard. He goes from Tyre, I think it's in Lebanon, north of north of uh, Jerusalem, um, farther north. Um, and he's describing this great king Antiochus who has all this power. This king unto him took a peer, a wife who died and left a female heir. So buxom, blithe, and full of face, as heaven had lent her all this grace. So nature had bequeathed her, bestowed on her all this beauty um, with whom the father liking took and her to incest did provoke bad child. Worse father. To entice his own to evil should be done by none. By custom what they did begin was with long use accounted no sin. So the fact that it became established because as the approval of a king made it more acceptable. (laughs) I hope everybody's seeing the connection between what went on then and what's going on today. It's not a monarch deciding what's going to be okay because the monarch does it, everybody goes along with it. We're in a democracy. Once a majority of people give their approval to something, it becomes established, it becomes fixed, no matter what it is, because the majority has the power. Yeah. So the principle is the same. Where, Where there's power, people can make whatever they want because they have the power to do it. Is it in accord with God's law? Is it in accord with virtue? It's another question. The beauty of this sinful dame made many princes thither fame to seek her as a bedfellow and marriage pleasures, playfellow, which to prevent he made a law to keep her still and men in awe. that whoso asked her for his wife, his riddle told not, if he didn't answer the riddle, lost his life. So for many a, a wife, for many a men, did die, as Jean Grimm looks to testify. There's all these heads on a wall. Um, now, I want to... I, um, Pericles comes, music is played. He looks at her, he describes her um, about line... Let's, let's look at a few lines. Line 28. Before thee stands this fair hesper, Hesperides with golden fruit, but dangerous to be touched, for death like dragons here fright thee um, hard... Her face like heaven enticed thee to view her countless glory, which desert must gain. Um, The the Hesperides is a myth um, in which a dragon and some women guard a tree full of apples. It's extraordinary that apples would have this ruled in a Greek myth back to a garden lost because it was the apple that was behind um, um, the fall in the garden. Peric- Pericles describes her, he says, Her face, the book of praises, wears red, nothing but curious pleasures, as from thence sorrow were ever raised, done away with. For her to have such beauty would mean just endless pleasure, and testy wrath could never be her mild companion. That's about line 18. Pericles thanks Antiochus, and then he takes he takes the ordeal. He puts his life at risk to answer the riddle, with the belief that he can do it and come away with um, Antiochus's daughter as his bride. The riddle reads, I am no viper, yet I feed on mother's... This is, about line, this is about line 65 or so, Act 1, Scene 1. I am no viper, yet I feed on mother's flesh, which did me breed. I sought a husband, in which labor I found that kindness in a father. He's father, son, and husband mild. I mother, wife, and yet his child how they may be, and yet in two, as you will live, resolve at you. He sees pretty quickly what the riddle is saying. I, I, w- I want to hold off on this. I haven't read enough, but I'm trusting you guys have read enough. You know, this is where I want to go. You know that this world is very different from Lear's. Immediately in King Lear, we're thrown into Lear's character. We get to know him in depth inside. And we, we get to know the daughter's insides by all the things that they do. So in Lear, we can't read a scene without coming to know the depths of evil in his daughters, the things they say, the um, the attempt on Cordelia's part to be virtuous by not telling a lie, Lear's rage. In that In that tragedy, we're drawn into the interior of individual lives. And we know the plot gets more and more complicated as Lear goes from the castle world to the heath and from heath to Dover Beach. Okay, is that clear? In this play, we get nowhere close to the interiors of people. Nowhere close. You, If you've read the play, you know that um, we tend to stay on the surface of things. thing. Um, um, Antiochus sees immediately that Pericles understands the riddle, and he gives them a, a respite, a 40-day um, pardon period. Lear goes home to Tyre, and he tells his servant that he's got to leave because he knows that if he stays, Antiochus, who's a very powerful man, will come and attack his city. So to save save his city and himself, he, he sets out. And for the rest of the play, he will be, like a Christian, a man in exile. It's like Christ saying, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, This is not our home. Our home is with God. We lost it. Our whole struggle here on earth is to return home. Remember, St. Augustine called us a pilgrimage people, a peregrine people. We should always be in motion. The church is that image of the motion back to God. That's the image, not our home. I mean, that's our home, but it's always moving there. In this play, we don't get close at all. So here's my question to try to get this out at the very beginning, because lots of people just don't find this entertaining. I mean, when you read Lear, you're just taken by the intense things that are going on inside people. Not so here. So let me ask this question. Is Shakespeare failing as a writer here in having a a person narrate his play? Or is there some wisdom? Is, there, is he trying to do something here that's very different from what he's doing in Lear? This comes later. So it's not as if he's not capable of facing pain. We know that from King Lear. He has the courage to, to go into depths most artists won't face. They just won't go that far. He does. So is he failing here? Is he slipping in his powers? Or is there something else going on? Why a narrator? Why do we not go into depth in the characters? Is there something good to be said for that? Can anybody speculate on that?
5: I'll throw my hat in.
0: Good. Okay, so. So long as you uh, got another we, one. So long. As you, so long as you have more hats, because I don't want you to stop throwing your hat <laughs> in the rest of this night. So. Sorry, I'll pick it back
5: up. Sorry, I'll pick it back up. Okay, to me, Gower reminds me kind of the narrator in the Iliad. You know, kind of a muse that that's there to tell a story. But in this story, it's not the characters that are important as much as the characteristics that they bring, like the characteristics of their virtue or their sin. So you don't have to go as in depth. That's why Gower is there to kind of set the story. Forgive me, but he's a modern-day Oompa-Loompa. He's there to set the story. What's that? Sorry,
0: what is that? To, Do you, I don't an Oompa-Loompa. Yeah.
5: from uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Explain it. Sorry, he's there to,
0: you're talking to a man nope. who lives in a cave. Here, I'm. <laughs> <laughs> well,
5: he's there to set the stage so that a lesson can be taught. Um, you don't and you you don't have to dig deeply into the characters to see what kind of lesson you can pull out of them and then he jumps so it's not as much about character development it is about what's happening now what can we learn what happened later yeah. so that's my take on that
0: is your hat back on i don't want to lose you the rest of this class
5: <laughs> i i love this book i really thought it oh, was great oh good too.
0: But wait, I'm going to stop for a second. I don't want. I want to be careful because I want. I want everybody. I'd like to get anybody else's stuff. But why do you love it? Can you give me just briefly a reason?
5: Um, I really understood it a hundred times better than King Lear. I really, from beginning to end, I'm like, yep, okay, this makes sense. And and the, I don't know. I just, just I like the way it was written. When you said a lot of people don't like this play, I thought. I don't know. They're I guess they're more intelligent than I am and oh, B-S, I just like stuff,
0: Sorry for using that. God, i I I'm afraid of what's going to happen to me. What if I don't have all these things censored because I've already used a couple <laughs> swear words on this. Um
5: Anyway, I I just really I I don't know. It was it was easy for me to read and yeah. I enjoyed the, the characters yeah. and yeah. I mean I like I like good stories as opposed to everybody getting murdered. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, yeah. if, if I can take on a responsibility of a teacher and you take it seriously, your penance for the next year is sometime, you've got to go back to King Lear and read it again. <laughs> Anybody else on this question, why is he using Gower? And this, this um, I'm going to call it a different mode. In all of his dramas, we go directly into the, remember Plato, Mimesis and Diegesis. Mimesis means you imitate the characters directly. Diegesis, um, you get them through somebody, so you have the the poet's voice. So Homer is diegetic. Jane Austen is diegetic. She's speaking. Lyric, All lyrics are diegetic. You know the lyrics we've been reading is the voice of the poet. In Eliot's Four Quartets, we're hearing his voice. In drama, we keep hearing the voices of other characters. They're speaking in their own person. So drama tends to be more... Objective interior or lyric takes us into the interior, into the inside. Here, he's Shakespeare gives us Gower who's telling a story about these characters. Why does Shakespeare do this? Can anybody add anything to what Melody said? I think what she said is right on, but can anybody add anything? I'm going to call this another mode. The mode of presentation is different. In Lear, we go into each of the characters pretty deeply. Here, he's doing everything he can to keep us out. To keep us at a... Would you agree with that? He, we, we know these characters, but we're never allowed... We're The interior never takes up the action. Is that clear? We He, he never allows that interior to, to change his focus. I, I thought Melody's description... We're always mindful of an action taking place before us. So he never lets a preoccupation with the interior interfere with that view. Is that clear? Mm -hmm. So it's a very different mode. It's like turning from FM and AM or from a certain way of seeing things to another. Um, It's just a very different mode of presentation. Why does he do that here? Okay, let me. Bob, Karen, any thoughts? You. If you don't, I don't want to press you guys. I, I mean, I. You, we're dealing with, God, sadly, you're dealing with somebody who grew up on literature. I mean, didn't grow up on it, but turned to it in, in as a young man and. So...
4: Well, I, I'm guessing a complete answer would come when, like Melody, we've read the whole story. I have to confess I haven't, because yep. I wasted my time in two days reading about a very different Pericles, which shows you how much <laughs> I needed this course. This is not a course. I no, 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 no. I mean, activity, whatever, group. I'm
0: whatever. doing everything I can to avoid that stigma. Um <laughs> So, it, Melody, in view of what Chuck said, does that mean you're going to spend, since you've already read Pericles, you're going to find another Shakespeare, maybe possibly a drama to read over the next couple of weeks?
2: Um. Never I mean, mind, I'm never
0: mind. Go. I've got that I'm Lear. Deep Lear, deep Lear is on, um, right, yeah. Here.
5: Lear is December 31st of nec- of this year. Oh, stop. So I have a year to do it.
0: Boy, I'm, uh-huh. I'm, I'm going to come up and visit you if that's the case. Um... Um, let me offer this thought. I'm going to say, Kath, Anne, did you have your, did you, did you have? Well,
1: I liked very much what Melody said because it was very much what I was thinking. It struck me as almost a morality play in that the character here is good and here is evil, <laughs> and it, as she said, it's really not even so much about the the characters as what they represent
0: or an action outside of them, if I can put it that way. I, you yes. know that I, I the, the, Remember, Aristotle's definition of a plot was an action, an interior from here to here. That an action is taking place that involves all these regimes, so there's something international. There's this action going on. We're being able to see this one character in light of these other regimes, so we're learning something about the relationship between an individual and you know a larger world. I'd, I'd like to put it this way. I think both plays are Catholic in a, in a, in a, in a deep sense. Um, in Lear, because we go to the depth of a human being who has been on a wheel of fire, who's been in some sense crucified. He's gone through a crucifying ordeal, if I can use that word. He's given up everything. Remember I last time we met, I, I went to that passage where he first arrives at Dover and he says, let's go away to jail like spies, and talk about who's in and who's out. And so he's captured, and he looks at, as if he's at the end of things, that he's completely changed. And my reading of that is that he's not. He's still holding on to something in the world. He, you know, he can have his daughter, and they can go away as spies and spy on the world. He hasn't lost everything yet. And it isn't until the end when he loses Cordelia that he has lost anything, and he says, never, 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 she'll not come again. And then he goes, look there, look there. So it's at that moment when he's lost absolutely everything he loves, everything, that he finally is witness to a liminal experience, something, at least that's my reading of it. So in King Lear we go to the depths of an experience that's like the crucifixion. It shares, I'm going to say it shares, that he's learned to love in a way that's Christ-like. I would say that Lear is a Christ-like figure along with Cordelia, the two of them are. And I would say that characters like Edmund and and, uh, Edgar share closely because they're servants. They serve their fathers, their lords. They risk their lives for them. that small handful of characters enter into a crucifying sequence, a series of events. In Pericles, he's doing exactly the opposite in a Catholic way. He's showing that, in um, how to put this, that just as the church calls us to a crucifixion, all of us, to give up the world, It also calls us to let go of the world and break our attachments. Um, The church asks all of us at every age, because it's the position the church takes. Now hold on to this tightly. It's the position the church takes. The church is Christ. That's our belief. It's not a brick-and-mortar institution. It is Christ, the sacraments. It's living. It is Christ in the world. So it's always trying to bring Christ to the world, no matter what the character of the world is, whether it was Rome, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, modernity, it does not matter. We know that from the point of view of the church, the world is always evil. Satan's under control, evil's at work. The church is there to answer. It's Christ. So the church is always ask, asking us not to be a child of our age, ever, ever. That is to become a product. So, the modern view this is the view we've been raised on. The modern view is all of us are products of blind forces over which we have no control that we don't understand. You call it evolution, all the other theories. But the theory is we're products of these evolutionary forces. We are a product of them. The church is saying, no, we're not. That, that, the, that we are determined by some things physical in our nature but that we're created by God. He's the beginning and end of all things. He's where we started. He's hopefully our return. So we're asked to stand outside the world, to not let what goes on in the world drown us. Because we all know that either, I mean, because of the awful things that go on around us, we will either despair, drown in despair, or we'll drown in cynicism. We'll just deny everything and say everything's evil. Because it'll catch up with us. And is everybody following? So the church says it doesn't want us to slip into that when we see awful things take place in the world. That we're asked not to be a child of our time, to live to be in the world, but not of it. And I don't know. I do. I myself do not know of a work in Shakespeare's canon that holds that position. That presents that mode as well as Pericles does. That in this play, he's taking a different stance. He's positioning us in a different way to the world so that we're, we're made aware of evils. We're seeing them at work. We see what they can do. But we're also shown there's a way to answer them without getting drowned by them or overwhelmed by them. Is that clear? Let me stop for a minute for any questions you might have. So if, you, so, if you go from Lear, I'm going to say Lear is absolutely Catholic, even though he's not dealing with church. I, it, to me, it's absolutely sacramental. What happens to Lear? That's at one extreme. If you look at Pericles, I'm going to say that's absolutely Catholic, too. From a position of detachment, that, that we're asked to do both, that somehow we enter into the interior of people and suffer with them. That's what Christ did. And also stay at a distance. To not just become a product of these things, overwhelmed by them, or to resign ourselves to them. Let me stop. Any any questions or challenges to that or um, anything I can any questions I can answer?
4: If I understand you right, you seem to be suggesting that uh, Shakespeare deliberately did not want us to get so involved in the characters themselves to live their experience to have the lessons drawn from us by a, a neutral observer or someone outside. Is that what you're saying?
0: pretty much, Chuck. It's just a different way of, you know, the church very often says, um, break your attachments, stand back. Because here, I mean, here, this is the play. Because if we love the wrong way, we very often cause errors in our life without seeing them. I mean, I, 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 I Suzanne and I, I mean, I don't know, I'm assuming all of you guys have experienced that. I mean, maybe not. But We've reached an age where we look back on our life just full of regrets. I mean, there's just so many things we didn't see or know. or um, We don't love the way we think we did. That our life is, hopefully, for all... I mean, I don't know why you guys are here otherwise. That we're all growing in love. We're learning to see our faults and trying to get better. And, you know, um, in ways that we didn't when we were young. That one of the things we see here is disordered loves everywhere, but in Gowan and Pericles we see a response to that that both becomes involved in it because Pericles becomes involved in all these regimes without without entering into that tragic world of Lear. So that we're aware that something else is going on and what I would say is going on in this play (laughs) my argument what I'm gonna say is going on in this play is bonum est diffusivum sui it's strictly Boethian. There is this goodness going on. Can we trust it? In fact, let me put it this way. When Pericles faces this danger from Antiochus, does he despair? Does he go to war with him? Does he do what Lear does? Does he bring down the heaven in curses? Are you following? Mm-hmm. He, he does not, he's not. His response is not Lear's. Does it mean he doesn't feel? I don't think so. And he's going to, by the way, in the middle of the play, I hate doing this, but in the middle of the play, he's going to lose his wife, he marries, and he's going to lose his daughter. The great beauty of this play is something's going to happen with all those things he lost. They're going to exemplify this principle. Bonum est diffusivum sui. Goodness diffuses itself. There is this goodness in the world. So a Christian, I think, correct me please, if you disagree. A Christian in the Lear world is asked to enter into the sufferings of other people. Part of our life, Christ did. We're reading Matthew, and if you've you know if you've read the Gospel recently, you know. And at St. Francis, Matthew begins with Matthew giving this long genealogy to show that Christ enters into this line of all these people to begin with Abraham, Abraham to David, David to the deportation, from the deportation to Christ, to Joseph and his virgin. That line is, we know from the people, we can identify them. Rahab we've met in the Divine Comedy. Rahab was the prostitute, the whore, that helped the um, chosen people enter the chosen land. They only came into that land through a prostitute. We know that King David was an adulterer and a murderer. Christ Matthew does that to show he he fully identifies with our humanity. Why does he have himself baptized? He's sinless. Why does he go to John and be baptized? Christ did everything he could to enter into our humanity. The opening the, the Matthew opens after the uh, description of the, you know, his birth and, and the birth of John with Christ in the desert facing the three temptations. That's before his Ministry begins to show he's starving for 40 days. He has to face every possible temptation humans did if he's to do the work of his father. So in these two plays, if we set them next to each other, it seems to me we have um, a glimpse of the richness of our tradition. That we're called to enter into the sufferings of those we love, and we're also called to step back trusting In this principle, bonum est diffusivum sui. Goodness diffuses it. God God is always at work. So, no matter, because the play is going to be full of losses. Characters are going to be losing things. Um, Antiochus lost his wife. What does he do? Has sex with his daughter. Pericles is going to lose the woman. He's going to get married. He's going to lose his um, bride and his daughter. He loses his father's armor. It's returned to him. Um, So, the experience from per- uh, per- per- Pericles' point of view and others is the world is mortal. The things that we prize, that we give our lives to, we keep losing. Something happens. A person can lose a job. We have struggles with our families. We all know these. We all know these things. They, they make up, I would say, the greater part of our lives. Anyway, let me just... That's my contention here, that if we look at those two plays, we're seeing something deeply a part of our Catholic faith. That God is at work in this world in both of those plays. One's a tragedy, one's a romance. Let me stop again. Any any questions or comments or or disagreements? <clears throat> I think it's one of the reasons you can enjoy the play. I mean I was so glad to hear Melody Throw her hat into the ring. Um, that it's not—it's not like anything else he's written. It's so different. If you don't see that, you're going to miss it. If you do see it, it seems to me you can take a pleasure. And Melanie's never going to hear me agree with her about lacking a mind to see these things. If I—it's a good thing I'm not in a classroom, Melody. I'm because I would physically—I think all of Mary knew this. I, I mean, when we were all together at at. Uh, sees if we were physically present I would come over physically to you and I'd hold a tablet over your head I'd probably threaten you um, okay any 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 thoughts yeah. here okay. so I hope um, when you read this play you will um, you'll read it aware that Shakespeare's Um, making a shift here that he's he's asking us to see things differently, to feel things differently that he's asking us to step back to be aware of something, to be engaged in it but also not become overwhelmed by it. Something like that. Because there is this goodness going on in the world. Okay? Okay, um, okay, let's go to the riddle. So Pericles enters into his ordeal. He's going to put his life at risk for this beautiful woman. He says, see where she comes, apparelled like the spring, graces her subjects and her thoughts. The king of every virtue gives renown to men. Can there be a more glowing expression of the beauty of a woman? Of every virtue gives renown to men her face. The book of praises where is read nothing but curious pleasures. As from thence sorrow were ever raised. Sorrow is going to be removed. To have hers your wife means nothing but pleasure. And Antiochus backs it up. Before thee stands this fair hesperides with golden fruit. That's the image of the, the apple tree in the in the Greek myth of the garden. We know it from um, from Genesis. Her face, like heaven, entices thee to view her countless glory, um, which desert must gain, and which without desert, because thine eye presumes to reach, all the whole heap must die. You have to risk yourself for something as beautiful as this, or you die, or you don't get it. <coughs> so he's presented with the riddle, and the riddle is, I am no viper yet I feed. Can everybody go there if you're not? It's line 65. I am no viper yet I feed on mother's flesh which did me breed. I sought a husband in which labor I found that kidsman in a father. He's father, son, and husband mild. I mother, wife, and yet his child. How they may be, and yet in two, as you will live, resolve in you. By the way, she goes nameless. She's the only character in the play without a name. She has no identity. So I think Shakespeare is, is showing us the danger in the way we love, particularly men of women. Um, and he, But she says, but being played upon before your time, he's looking at her, hell only dances at so harsh a chime, good sooth I care not for you. He knows that to, to choose her will commit him to hell. This is about line 80. Knowing that knowing sin within will touch the gate, you are a fair vial, and your sense the strings who fingered to make man his lawful music would draw heaven down and all the gods to hearken, but being played upon before your time, hell only danceth at so harsh a chime. Good sooth, I care not for you. He knows that to have her would be a hellish thing. and the, So here's the thing. All of the men at risk they've lost their heads. Shakespeare has kept his head. But he knows to do that puts him at risk. He's going to die. If he chooses her, he goes to hell. If he doesn't, because he knows the consequences, he's going to be killed, and teacons will kill him. So there's the ordeal. So if I were in a high school audience talking, I right now I'd say to the young boys, be careful of who you marry. <laughs> Suzanne didn't even laugh at that. <laughs> I thought it was funny. <laughs> okay, what's the riddle? Explain this. What does she mean, I am no viper, yet I feed on mother's flesh? This is the object of his love. He looks at this beautiful woman and the voice from her says, I am no viper, yet I feed on mother's flesh. How does she feed on her mother's flesh? Actually, let me take the whole thing, Doc. Let me take the whole thing. I feed on mother's flesh. I sought a husband in which labor. I found that kindness in a father. He's father, son, and husband mild. I mother, wife, and yet his child. So... How did she feed on her flesh? And why is um, her father a father, a son, and a husband? And how does that make her a mother and a wife, and yet her child? Let's just straighten this out. Is everybody clear in that? If he gets into this relationship with her, if he takes her, he knows it's a hellish thing. Um, but what is she? What's, what is... I don't know, what's the strangeness of this relationship, this sexual relationship? And by the way, I hope, I hope everybody picked up the point I made earlier, that in so many of the plays, Shakespeare's showing us that there is a justice to the world. The danger is when men have enough power to make whatever they want just, and they're attracted by the beauty of something, if it's sexual, they can make that what they want. Is that clear? Because I hope it's clear in our age. It's not something peculiar to monarchies when a king had that power, because democracies can do the same thing. If you have enough power concerning sexual things, you can make right whatever you desire because you have the power to make it so. Is everybody clear on that? Okay. So let's how is she feeding on her mother and how is her father both of or at the same time, a father, a son, and a husband. And how does that make her a mother, a wife, and a child? Let's straighten that riddle out.
4: Well, the Folgers notes says right there that she's feeding on her mother's flesh by defiling her mother's marriage. I haven't read the Folgers notes, but... That that
0: explains. Chuck, can you flesh? That's a bad pun. Can you can you flesh that out some? God, forgive, pardon, pardon the question.
4: Can you flesh that out some? Well, yes, presumably. I mean, I mean, although her mother's dead and gone, her her memory lives, and and in the sense she's still there, and so it's, if she, she could only uh, see it, obviously it would, would tear her. So it's a it's a violation of her of her. Uh, of her mother by doing
0: that. Even if her mother's not married, they were in a marriage, her mother and her husband, her and her father, as one. So in anything promiscuous that she does with either one of them, she would be, in that sense, feeding on the flesh that gave her life. Mm-hmm. Um, but So can we take the other... He's father, son, and husband, and she's mother, wife, and child at the same time, and daughter. Can can somebody help us work that out, Connie? How is how is the husband of both a, a father at the same time, a father, a son, and a husband at the same time? How does how does incest? It's really it's really amazing what Shakespeare's doing here because he's showing the danger of loving the wrong way. That you 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 can make your father your own husband, and you can make him son to himself. How is that so? Explain that, Lori? I, I don't understand the
3: son to himself. The other ones are
1: clear to, to me. And,
0: but can you make clear the ones you do. Explain. Say it again. Oh, sorry. Father,
4: that's Yeah, listen. So
3: the father and the husband seem easy, but but the son I'm not real sure about it. Where, where the son fits in. Um, who's the, who is he the son of? I don't, I
0: don't know. Okay, let's, let's let's go through this logically. If he's her father and she has sex with him, she makes him her husband.
4: Right. That's so he's a fair. father and
0: husband. How yeah. would that make him also a son then? I don't know. I had that
1: question. It's
3: good. Would he become childlike in some way? I don't know. I'm trying to mm-hmm. understand. He becomes childlike in some way, uh, uh, almost like even her, her son, and. Well,
0: if she's the daughter of him, right? What would that make him?
1: Like a
5: son-in-law. A son. Like that kind of son-in-law. Yeah, a son.
0: Okay. If she's the daughter, right? Mm-hmm. but she has an incestuous relationship with him she's the daughter that would make him a son so he's father son and husband mile. does that straighten everything out with the i mother wife and yet his child does that make clear how that's true that's so yeah,
1: yeah. are we okay i thought
0: go ahead
5: I sorry thought was, no. i
3: thought
5: it was interesting cuz you he brought up the fact about the golden fruit and um, that it's too dangerous to touch. Yeah. And then with, when the riddle starts, I am no viper, like a snake in the Garden of Evil Eden, that image of evil. So I I thought that was very
0: interesting yeah. too. Yeah. Is everybody okay? Does everybody Does hear everybody? It? Okay, I'm gonna if I can extrapolate here for a second. Um where do I do this mute? How do I do do this mute? I'm sorry. Oh here, mute all. Um, Let me just, let me, I I don't know, see see what your thoughts are about this. If the, if the only ordinate, I mean St. Augustine ordinate the word ordinary, lawful, normal, if the normal relationship, sexual relationship is between a man and a woman that's the norm because it's creative, that that's made clear by God, then at the opposite extreme would be incest because it, it, it involves the greatest complexity of perversions. Yeah, as we're seeing them here, it makes a man a father and a husband and a son and a woman a mother and a wife, you know, that you take on these multiple things that are all unnatural So that it seems to me what Shakespeare is doing is showing or implying a lawful marriage and whatever its perversions can be here. Because at least it has this advantage that it helps us see um, the fruitfulness of a marriage and the danger of anything outside of it. Is there anything in our age coming from the sciences that would help us see things this way in our world? I'm not aware of any. I mean, you guys can help me out. I hope I'm not having a closed mind here, but if we're all just atoms or products of blind forces and we can do whatever we want sexually, there's no law there governing us. I mean, we've grown up in a world which is if you look at every single thing, political issue, whatever it is in our age, almost every single one of them attacks marriage, undermines marriage. Every one of them, every single one strikes at marriages. So here's Shakespeare on a threshold of modernity writing a play whose beginning takes us back to Oedipus in some ways, but forward. It's about a marriage and all that happens. What's going to follow from this is Pericles is going to go on to these other regimes, and um, we're going to learn different things about the regimes and different things about marriage and couples and love and but here, at the outset, he's facing a, a situation which will threaten him with his life. Okay. Unless there's any questions, what I want to do is just quickly get to the end of this play, I mean the end of the first act, because I wanted to cover the first act um, before we left tonight. Any, any questions or responses to this opening, what's going on in Pericles, how important it is? I wish more kids were reading Shakespeare today or Homer or the things we've been reading. I mean, to give them some sense that there's something else that might be going on in the world. <laughs> God. Any any questions or Ann, you look like you're troubling over something.
1: Okay. I was just when you were asking earlier about in in modern times. Incest would be as perverse sexually as we have become. Uh, Incest is still the ultimate taboo.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Actually, I mean, there are some
0: people who actually um, push it without any sense that anything um, opposes them because according to science, there's no reason, I mean, genetically, it... May, there may be evidence that incest will pursue, pr- produce um, disabilities or infirmities or something in a line. You know, I, I don't know it because I don't follow it. But, but I know there are lots of people today that are encouraged to hold that position because they don't. They don't grow up in a world which um, treats marriage as the ultimate end of the sexual life for a man and a woman. Um, in our age, we didn't grow up that way, um, but. Okay, let's let me let's quickly go on. When, when um, Antiochus realizes that Pericles has guessed the riddle, he gives him a reprieve. He's not admitted that he commits the crime, but he he, he makes it clear that um, that um, Pericles has got something to say, um, he's hinted at what he sees. And he leaves it that way. And then Pericles returns to Tyre and Antiochus um, gets um, Thylart, th- thalyard one of his henchmen, to go kill Pericles. Um, in, in Act 1-2, Pericles returns and he tells Elecanus, one of his lords, um, what's happened, that he discovered the, the perversity of Antiochus' position and the danger that he's put himself in, and his people, because he knows that because um, Antiochus is powerful, he he could come and destroy his land. So rather than put his own people at risk, he leaves. Helicanus says about line 100, Therefore, my Lord, go travel for a while till this, till that his rage and anger be forgot, or till the destinies do cut his threads of life. Your rule direct to any, if to me, day serves, not light, more faithful than I'll be. You can trust me. He's made it clear, in fact, at the beginning of the scene when the Lord's come, he will not um, flatter Pericles, as ruler. Pericles says about line, line 60, Rise, pretty, rise, sit down, thou art no flatter. I thank thee for it, and heaven forbid that kings should let their ears hear their faults hid fit counselor and servant for a prince who by this wisdom makes a prince thy servant. He's going to serve his servant. What wouldst thou have me do? And Helicanus, to bear with patience such grief as you do lay upon yourself. So think about the difference between Lear here and Pericles and the role that the servants play here. Helicanus is saying, be patient, bear with times until the the gods, the destinies do cut short Antiochus' life. Um... So Pericles flees. He says, Tyre, I now look from thee then and to Darsus intend my travel where I'll hear from thee. Um, we see that um, Thalyard um, comes to Tyre with the intention of killing Pericles and learns that he's gone. Um, it's interesting that that, um, that Thalyard realizes that when he returns home, Antiochus will kill him because he knows something or presumes to. So if he, if he kills Pericles, um, he's going to be lost if he returns home. So once again, a, a character is put in a compromising situation. So there's some virtue in Thalyard um, as a man. In Act 1, Scene 4, we're introduced to Cleon and Dionysus. This is in Tharsis, which is north, again, on the, on the coast of Asia Minor. And Dionysia and um, Cleon are grieving because their their regime is in poverty. It's clear from what they say that at one point they were wealthy, a very wealthy regime. Take a look at America, in our time, the wealth that we've had, and ask yourselves: Are there signs that we are going to lose this position in the world? Um, Act four, scene or Act one, scene four, about line thirty or so, thirty-five. But see what the heaven can do by this our change; those mouths who, sorry, those mouths who, but of late, earth, sea, and air were all too little to content, to content and please, although they gave their creatures in abundance. As houses are defiled for want of use, they are now starved for want of exercise. Those palates who, not yet two saviors, save savers younger, must have invention to delight the taste. Would now be glad of bread. They're in poverty, um, so we're in a regime in which the people have gone from extremes of wealth to extremes of poverty, where they get news that Pericles has come. Cleon's first response is, they've learned that we're vulnerable and they've come to destroy us. But Pericles makes clear that he's come to, um, to help them about line 85. This is act one four eighty five Lord Governor, for so we hear you are, let not our ships in number of our men be like a beacon fired to measure your eyes. We have heard your miseries as far as Tyre, and seen the desolation of your streets, nor comes we to add sorrow to your tears, but to relieve them of their heavy load, and these our ships you happily may think are like the Trojan horse was stuffed within with bloody veins, expecting overthrow, are stored with corn to make your needy bread. And give them life when hunger, starved, half dead." Um, One of the men says, the gods of Greece protect you. It's interesting, this is uh, um, showing a Greek influence in this um, mid-eastern seacoast culture, all of these things that are just beyond the pale of Christianity. These are the cities that Paul went to. Um, Pericles arise, I pray you arise, we do not look for reverence but for love and harbage for ourselves our ships and men." Right now he's hoping for safety and some protection. So that's the opening of the play. That's where we'll leave it. I want to just read here. So the first act ends with Pericles offering to help um, Cleon and Dionysia from Tharsis. So here's a regime that went from wealth to poverty. Now what are we going to learn about this regime through the play because we're going to visit several regimes. Okay, If you, if you take a look at my notes, you'll, you'll see there's an outline for tonight's class and also a list of the regimes and what's going on with them. So the notes should help. And I've also included maps that show the course of, uh, of uh, Pericles' journeys. Visually they should help. I, I'm just terribly visually oriented. I mean, I... Those things help me more than I can say. Anyway, they're all there. So this is where we are. Gower steps on the stage at the end of Act 1 to begin Act 2. He begins Act 2. So let me add to this, these things we've been talking about concerning Gower. Um, he's a poet. He's taking a work from his past that belongs to his past before he was born and lived. He's making it living in his time, and Shakespeare is presenting Gowan as a person who's bringing this past and who's alive now. So, one of the other functions Gowan has, it seems to me, is that he's showing that poetry keeps the past alive. It, it continues to make it a part of our experiences, so the past doesn't die, it's continually renewed, redeemed. It's been one of the themes we've had from the beginning since the Iliad. That the poet always takes the past forward, redeeming it as he goes. It's a little bit like heaven. There's no past or future for God, but God's always at work bringing good out of evil. Right? That's what he does. So the poet in some ways is performing a work that's divinely inspired in that sense. He's carrying the past. And in this, in this play, Shakespeare's doing that explicitly. He's having um, Gower come forward um, to narrate the play so that it's living, it's it's from a figure who died, who's living in the present, who's narrating a play to Shakespeare's time, and we're reading it now. Is that clear? So that's another aspect of Gower's character I just would... Like everybody to think about. It. The other is, it's really interesting because, I mean, to go back to what Melody um, said in Anne, um, in in this play, as in no other, Shakespeare, he doesn't do this in any other play that I'm aware of. Shakespeare, usually there's two regimes, the two settings. He's usually working with two settings. Here, he's working with a number of regimes and the sea. So there's Um, a lot going on involving different regimes, but we've got a narrator unifying them, holding something together. So they're not just broken up things. To go back to the argument that I was making earlier, my contention, that um, because he steps back and he's not overcome by whatever is immediately in front of him, he can put together a whole involving a greater number of things like the still point at that wheel, at the center of the wheel, the way God does, or the way the poet does here, that Gower and Shakespeare do. Is that clear? The power of the mind to take all these disparate things, because think about it. Can anybody, put it this way, using Boethius' circle, can anybody do that on the circumference of the circle? Distance from the center. While they're on the circumference, circling, can they do it? absolutely not they're too caught up in the motion of the circumference but if you're at that still point of the center you can you can see the relationship you can unify all those things because you're partly you're a part of them the circle doesn't exist without you you're part of them but you're also removed from them is that clear so gower has that function he it's a different mode a different stance he's he's showing us to step back to look at things and see that bonum est diffusivum sui, that goodness is diffusive, it's it's at present. When we come to Tharsis, what we see is, there seems to be no good, everybody's suffering. But suddenly, uh, Pericles arrives and a goodness is given that they didn't expect. Now, what what are Cleon and Dionysia going to do? When you read, watch them. Because right now something's being given to them. Will they make good on that goodness? What will they do? So, is everybody following? There's this goodness being given. Are people working with it? What do people do with it? So, Act 2 begins with Gower. Here have you seen a mighty king, his child, he is. There it is. There's that Middle English. Indeed. His child indeed to incest bring. A better prince and benign lord that will prove awful both in deed and word. That's Pericles. He will do an extraordinary thing. Be quiet then, as men should be, till he hath passed necessity. That is, till... Wait till the end. Chuck Chuck made this point. Well, wait. remember we've been saying this from the beginning. We won't be able to read a play well, not even Lear. That was said for somebody's benefit. Um, we won't be able to read a play well until we see the whole thing, and if we're confused by it, the natural thing to do would be to go back and reread it again. Um, we won't understand it till we see the whole. So we have to wait till he had passed necessity, till he's gone through all his ordeals, and then we'll see. I'll show you those in trouble's reign, losing a mite, a mountain gain. He's, he's already letting us know some good will come. Wait, let me stop. Could anybody have done this in Lear? Let's say, let's say the fool said, hold on, Lear, be patient. A great good will come to you. Would Lear have heard it? Would it have changed his behavior? Is everybody following? Giving the th- or Gower's giving the thing away. That he's showing us there is a trust in a goodness now. He's saying, "Be quiet, yeah." Where he says, "Be quiet." Where's the quiet word? I say, "Be quiet." Then, as men should be, till he hath passed necessity. Till the ordeal is over, the good in conversation to whom I give my benison, my blessing, is still at Tharsus, where each man thinks all is writ he spoken can, and to remember what he does, build his statue to make him glorious. that is, they're still given to this sense of magnificence. I want to do these great things. that's the trouble with Tharsus that they built this great city they had they wanted to do these great things, and they still carry that right to other in their poverty. But tidings to the contrary are brought your eyes. What needs speak I? And then he gives a dumb show, and then he goes on. So here we've got a very different play. Yes, we've got a narrator standing outside of it. In a sense, we're already being given the outcome, even though we haven't experienced And by the way, Shakespeare is going to do something at the end of this play that was never done in any of the earlier drafts. What he's going to do is extraordinary. It's one of the most amazing moments I know in all of literature. And you won't experience it unless you read the whole play. Connie, where are you? God, it's just <laughs> You have to read the whole play. Um, so this is a very different play. We're asked to stand in a different place. Oh, Connie, who's that? Who's that?
2: Certain years, grandbaby. What's I haven't? I've been listening, but I haven't heard anything in the last thirty minutes. No. Uh, well, then you've just
0: <laughs> you've been spared my awful sense of humor. What well, is it? A her?
2: No, it's a it's a boy. He's just he's got a girl's blanket on. What's his, What's his name? What's his name? Blaze. 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 Uh huh. Blaze Vincent.
0: That's to which daughter? As Samantha. Samantha.
2: My oldest daughter. Uh-huh. How
0: old is he? Blaze.
2: He's only two months.
0: Yeah, God! Congratulations to your daughter. Too much. Yeah, wow. Thank you. Yes,
2: yes. Why am I not so surprised
0: to see you so at home?
2: <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> uh oh! Somebody's
0: not happy. Connie, I just gave a um. A, I I I. Oh, look at you, boy! It's so good to see you and your family around. Um,
2: I know. I just
0: threatened. I just threatened everybody who didn't read the whole play. So.
2: Oh, I heard you. I heard you. Okay. <laughs>
0: Anyway, there's an extraordinary extraordinary moment at the end. It's extraordinary. It's not, we're not in Lear's world. It's a different quality of extraordinary. It's um, Lear was on a wheel of fire. It was the loss of everything. And, and I believe it was a miracle at the end. But here we're in a different world. So we know from Gower what's going on. We know the play has already unfolded, that we're being told to play. We know the end or have some sense of but, you know, there's an end. So we're being asked to stand a different way. It's as if we know this goodness is here. We know it'll come out good. The question is, what what will we do with the goodness offered us? Is that clear? So even though there's this great goodness at work, will we work with it? Does Pericles work with it or not? Does Antiochus work with it? Um, do Cleon and Dionysa work with it? They're going to be helped in their poverty will what will they do with it okay those are some of the major questions for this play so next week we'll we'll see if we can tackle acts two and three mm-hmm. and then the week after we'll end the play that's tentatively what we'll do okay any questions before we end can i say sorry kate go ahead sorry can you put your audio on is your audio on Can't hear you, Kay. Is your audio on? Can't, your audio's not on. Do you know how to turn your audio on? Mm. Oh, there. Say again. Mm. Damn. Can't hear you, Kay. I just and I want to hear you. Um, are you speaking directly into the mic? It looks like your audio's not on. Do you? Yeah, you've got a check. There's a check through your audio. I just saw it. There's a line going through your audio. Can you click on the audio button? So it's a picture of a microphone. No. Okay. Kay, do this. I'm really sorry, because I want to I hear your question badly, but um, I'm going to click off because it looks like you're stuck. Um, write a note after class, and I'll write back, unless you see the audio button. Can anybody help her? Where do you get the audio button? I'm, there should be a
4: bar with an image of a, of a little microphone. If you move the cursor onto the screen, it should appear in a bar at the, near the bottom of the screen. You can see the microphone symbol. Okay. Um, let's wait. Um,
0: um, Kay, write me and, and see if I can help, okay, with your question. Anyway, good to see you all. Um, Pericles is a strange play, very strange. It's for strange people. <laughs> um, one of whom I am. Um, so it's a really good play. It's not closely or or macbeth or hamlet or it's just a very very different play but it asks us to stand in the world in a very different way so that's one of the beauties of what he's doing um, and most people don't even see it so have a good week all of you um stay safe covid's all around us um and um hopefully we'll we'll all meet together next week Okay, keep, a, keep Suzanne and me in your prayers, please, and we'll do the same with you guys.
1: You guys have a good week. Good night. Thank, you. Good night. Good
3: night. Thank
1: you. Good night. Thank you. Good night, everyone.